to The Dish, the Medical Laboratory Professional Association's monthly podcast series. I'm Danika Evering. This season, we're focusing on an issue which impacts all of us here in Ontario, an impending medical laboratory staffing crisis. This means 44% of all lab staff could retire in four to eight years, a pressure already being felt in labs across Ontario. The absence of this workforce has the potential to cost the province millions of dollars in lengthening hospital stays and increasing wait times while adding an additional barrier to accessing vital services, particularly for those living in rural and remote communities. We spoke to Greg Doiron and Anaskara about the specific dynamics of hiring in Eastern Ontario closer to Ottawa and Kingston, recruiting questions for rural communities, the proud laboratory professionals working overtime to fill the gap, and possible ways forward through the shortage crisis. My name is Anas Gara. Uh, I'm a lab manager with Erla. I manage our lab site at Cornwall Community Hospital. My role includes uh, managing the daily operations of the lab, uh, performance management, recruitment, process management, uh, budgeting, uh, basically keeping the lights on and uh, putting out fires on a daily basis. Uh, I have a team that consists of uh, 35 positions, including senior MLTs, MLTs, and MLAs. Hi, I'm Greg Duanon. I'm the Vice President of Operations here at Erla. Uh, as Vice President of Operations, I'm responsible for the oversight of all of our clinical operations across our 18 sites and 41 laboratories. And ultimately, uh, Anas is one of our excellent team members. We have a team of uh, 18 managers who are providing support across the organization uh, for various teams, and uh, happy to be here today. Following on that, Greg, are you comfortable speaking a little bit more about Erla's work for those that might not be totally familiar with it yet? Yeah, for sure. So Erla, which it's an acronym that stands for Eastern Ontario Regional Lab Association, is actually an organization that was formed in 2012 by uh, ultimately taking on all of the acute hospital-based laboratories in what was formerly known as the Champlain Lynn. We provide uh, hospital-based lab services for 16 hospitals across 18 sites, and we cover the full gamut of lab services from core lab uh, services in some of our smaller sites to uh, highly esoteric testing in uh, our reference lab sites located at the Ottawa Hospital's general campus and at our Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. And we do literally everything from phlebotomy to uh, molecular diagnostics and everything in between. We cover every major clinical service, biochemistry, hematology, transfusion medicine, pathology, virology, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, we have about uh, 850 uh, staff that work at Erla. Um, Of those, approximately 350 are MLTs. Uh, about 400 of them are technicians, what we call them LT3s, and then we have uh, non-union management support and, of course, about 80 medical and scientific staff who all work together as one team to provide high-quality and efficient care here in eastern Ontario. And then, Nas, could you share a little bit about the work specifically that Cornwall Community Hospital does? Okay, so our lab is a 24-7 core lab uh, with on-site testing in chemistry, hematology, and uh, transfusion medicine. Uh, our microbiology, pathology, and specialized testing really refers out to our uh, ERLA uh, base lab out of uh, the Ottawa Hospital here in Ottawa. 
Uh, we also have a, a good size point of care testing program in Cornwall that we manage. Uh, the bulk of our workload is inpatients, but we also have a significant uh, workload uh, from hospital clinics as well. The two of you might have different perspectives on this. When did you learn or suspect there was a shortage of medical laboratory professionals coming? Yeah, maybe I'll start. And uh, Anas uh, is living this every day, but uh, I'll yeah. say that at a high level, I mean, uh, at Erla, with the size of organization we have, we always have vacancies within the organization. It's just a reality of our business. I think when I first started noticing that we were running into um, a little bit more of a challenge in recruitment was when we started to see that most of our positions were being filled by internal applicants. Unique feature of Rural, as I mentioned before, we're a separate organization uh, with 18 sites. All of our uh, staff are members of one union. And as a result, one of the benefits of being an Earl employee is that they have internal mobility, meaning they could apply for a job in Cornwall, uh, but they may end up, uh, because of their family circumstances, being more desirous of uh, an opportunity in Ottawa. And mm -hmm. so for that reason, we see a lot of internal mobility, which is a great asset for our employees. But ultimately, uh, when I started to see the majority of our positions being filled only by internal churn, uh, and less or no applicants applying externally for positions, uh, I started to get concerned. And I think where we're seeing that, at a, I guess at a higher level, is really the where we're seeing the biggest challenges in highly specialized areas, mm -hmm. or on the contrary, in uh, highly geographically remote areas. Those are the areas where we're really struggling to to get candidates. And, and the reason for that is that primarily those are the ones that really are requiring us to recruit from outside of our geographic catchment area. Mm -hmm, right. This was really evident for our lab in Cornwall Hospital as well. We have recently been more successful in recruiting candidates uh, from across the country than from uh, within the province. My latest hires mm -hmm. have been more from Alberta, Manitoba, BC, the US, and we've even hired internationally educated MLPs as well. Uh, so if we are in a position in Cornwall that it is close to, relatively close to Ottawa, uh, which poses a, a little bit of a challenge recruiting people to Cornwall as they always favor the larger urban centers. Cornwall is a beautiful town uh, with close proximity to Ottawa and, uh, and Montreal to large urban centers, but that sometimes poses a challenge than to what you have in typical rural and remote communities in Canada. I'm lucky to have a little bit of a different perspective on this. Uh, I'm a relatively newcomer to Canada. I started working here in 2014, and I was fortunate with my first lab position in uh, northwest Alberta in a very rural and remote setting. Uh, so that posed a little bit different set of challenges that we have here in Cornwall. Um, the challenges of recruitment up north to, are obvious to everybody. It's a very challenging environment to recruit and retain people there. Mm -hmm. But being in a, a little bit of a juxtaposition here in Cornwall, we're in close proximity to large urban centers, poses a separate challenge as well. Uh, I think the pool of candidates is more concentrated in large urban centers. You have more population, you have more local uh, candidates are suitable to apply for positions. And it's really hard to attract those candidates, albeit an hour, an hour and a half away from where they live, to work in a separate community. With our line of work, we're a 24-7 lab, 
I've recently hired a couple of candidates who lived in uh, Montreal and Ottawa who tried to do their daily commute, and that proved to be not a sustainable uh, lifestyle. It's not easy for anybody to drive on a daily basis, especially in the winter time, an hour and a half, an hour and 15 minutes to get to work, an hour and a half to get back. So that posed a little bit of a different challenge than what I'm used to, and it honestly made me very passionate about tackling this issue. Uh, as I told you, I do provide a little bit of a different perspective on this, and mm -hmm. I really appreciate the work the MLPAO has done. I, I read the recent report uh, sponsored by the MLPAO and authored by Chris Bailey, and it really highlights the symptoms of the problem that we're having nationwide, and it's making us that the problem is no longer imminent. The problem is actually here, mm -hmm. and we are already facing the consequences. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that feedback. That's really good to hear. So what I'm hearing you say, though, too, is that for recruiting in Cornwall, there's a specific issue that you're kind of proximal to these larger cities, but not far enough away that they don't have a kind of magnetic pull. Is that what you're saying? Uh, that is correct. It's just, as I said, it's a little bit of a weird juxtaposition where it's a good-sized town. It's a beautiful place to live in. I always do my best sales pitch whenever I'm recruiting in Cornwall, so I've practiced this a lot. It's a beautiful town with other big city problems. It's just attracting people there. It's a little bit tricky since we have closer proximity to uh, Ottawa and uh, Montreal on the Quebec side. Mm -hmm. People would rather stick with large urban centers where they live rather than relocating to uh, Cornwall, and it's been easier for us to attract candidates from other provinces and uh, even from the U.S. and internationally educated MLTs. It's been easier for us to attract those to come in and stay uh, rather than from Ottawa region, which is the closest region uh, with a large uh, candidate pool. Right, like almost people who are already kind of interested in relocating, right? Absolutely. And we're always most successful with locating communities like Cornwall. We have a few like that in our organization. Pembroke is another that comes to mind, for example. The best recruits we end up getting are those where they are drawn to the community for other reasons, either a spouse um, moving to that community and they, they need to, to relocate uh, along with them or if there's a family connection. So. We're always eager to have our, our people come home, and whenever we get opportunities, we, we jump on those because uh, they're really the greatest opportunities to not only recruit but retain them in those communities. Could you speak a little bit more to that, Greg? Like, what are some of those patterns that you're noticing across all of the Eastern Ontario sites? Yeah, I mean, I think that Anna's done a great job of describing what we're seeing at a macro level. I think mm -hmm. for the most part, uh, individuals interested in coming to Erla are interested in in uh, you going to the urban sites, uh, the exceptions to that are where there are family connections or other reasons why they may be interested in going to particular areas of the community. Uh, housing costs have a factor. When somebody comes mm. that's new to uh, new to the organization and they notice how much it costs to settle their family uh, in metropolitan Ottawa versus, for example, the Winchester area. Uh, that can be uh, an incitement uh, for them to think about a different uh, role within the organization. And, you know, once people get settled uh, in our organization, I think they become aware of the benefits of working in one of our smaller sites. It's that initial reaction of, oh, I have to be in Ottawa to be close to the action, uh, you know, I think it plays to our disadvantage a bit in terms of being able to recruit. And so, um, you know, we're working hard to try to uh, not only 
uh, advocate and market Erla as, an, as a great employer, but also the different communities that we serve. It's kind of a neat opportunity to be able to go work in one of 16 different communities uh, and ultimately have the same employer and be able to maintain your status. Uh, you can almost kind of shop around for which town makes most sense for you and your family. Uh, throughout your career. So, that you know, we've seen that. Um, I think the other phenomenon we've seen, and I spoke to it earlier, is around specialty areas. So mm -hmm. we focused a lot of energy on core labs, but one of the biggest challenges we're having is in what I call hyper-specialized testing areas. So case in point, um, you know, when we started looking at pathology, uh, there are areas of pathology where the, the, the training required or at least the expectations of the work to be performed uh, or even just the interest in that field of work is is rather limited. So you get a very small pool of individuals uh, that are interested and or properly prepared to provide support in those areas, and therefore they're not applying. Uh, they're already likely well-established in another community, and then it leaves us to fight over a very limited pool of new grads. And uh, to be honest, that is uh, has been a real challenge as well. New grads are terrific, and we love bringing on new uh, grads into our organization. Challenge sometimes is the you know how uh, how available they are overall, and and also how prepared they are to take on some of those hmm. uh, more esoteric testing uh, environments. So some real challenges there for us, and uh, the sorts of things that we continually are strategizing to try to address. Uh, another challenge that I might uh, add in there mm -hmm. uh, with having dedicated isoteric testing in the bigger labs and in outpatient labs as well is that you have those MLTs working a single bench, a single discipline and becoming experts in their fields. This even limits our candidate pool in uh, more of the uh, out in more of the rural labs, more of the core labs where the generalists are uh, required to be working all the time. They're supposed to be uh, very well familiar with all disciplines as they rotate mm -hmm. between benches all the time. So this even limits our pool with getting candidates from the larger urban centers, where the just the operational efficiency of a larger lab requires MLTs to stick to a certain bench. Uh, same thing with the outpatient labs as well. Right. So that in the rural setting, they need to be able to do a lot of different things. Absolutely. And, and the smaller hospital labs, uh, they are true core labs where MLTs are required to cover all the basic benches that we covered, that being uh, the chemistry, transfusion medicine, and hematology as well. And I've had some candidates who came over from uh, the larger uh, labs, even within our organization, and large outpatient labs within the province who couldn't pass our uh, interview process because there are subject matter experts in their field of expertise working a single bench or a single discipline, when you get them, try and get them into recruitment into a core lab, uh, they are not able to uh, keep their competencies up. Yeah, it's, a, it's a real misnomer. I mean, we at Erla call our core lab MLTs our Swiss Army knives with a certain <laughs> degree of pride. I mean, they really truly are competent and trained to do just about anything that comes at them. And it's a very special kind of individual who does that and does that well day in, day out, knowing that they're sometimes the only person on the ground who is able to provide lab support at times and uh, at times where patients need them the most. So, you know, it's a really important role and I think is a bit of a misnomer out there around the importance they play and, and quite frankly, how complex it is to prepare an MLT to play that role. So definitely a challenge. It's not just about recruiting. It's about recruiting the right people. But I imagine also it's an exciting sell too. 
as that person, you might be able to do a variety of things. I think most people who are either new or actually, if you talk to the people who've been working core labs for 15, 20 years plus, they love what they do. And the reason why they love it is because no two days are the same. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and they really are able to make the most of all of the competencies they've acquired in their training and build on them. I think they appreciate being, especially in our smaller hospitals, such an integral part of the hospital. They may be a small lab, but they have most of the time very powerful voices as care providers on the on the clinical team. And I think that's also a very valuable, uh, you know, asset to them. Mm -hmm. For morale, well, it does take too. a special person to be really in this profession and uh, working on it, uh, working in it for so long. Uh, CoreLab MLTs are really resilient. They have to manage change uh, on a continuous basis and keep making new decisions depending on what's coming their way. It's uh, a lot more uh, diverse, and I, I don't know if I want to call it interesting. I'm a I'm a generalist by nature. So I don't want to be uh, biased that way, but it's not as monotone, if I could say that, as uh, single discipline, uh, larger lab uh, experience. Mm -hmm. This is so interesting. You mentioned this a little bit in your article for the advocates on us, and I'm wondering if you can talk about the other aspect a little bit of hiring to roll in remote areas, because I think something that we often hear from stakeholders is the proposal of connecting internationally educated MLTs into rural labs. And I think there's some really interesting possibilities there, but you talk a little bit about the things that may be lacking, depending on the way that this the town is set up of social networks and places to worship and those newcomer integration services. Can you speak a little bit to how those kind of things could be fostered in a small town in order to recruit those workforces? Uh, it would be a pleasure. I mean, this subject is close to my heart. Uh, I am an internationally educated MLT. I was trained uh, and educated and had my first job in the US. And I'm re also relatively a newcomer to Canada, which uh, my previous place of employment actually was the United Arab Emirates in the uh, UAE. And I've had the pleasure to live and work in quite a few countries in different continents. So uh, that's why I really became interested in this topic as I brought in a little bit of a different uh, perspective. I believe the current job market and national MLT shortage improves the chances of hiring any qualified candidate, regardless of where they got their education. Uh, but nonetheless, the challenges are a lot harder for internationally educated MLTs, as they have to go through a rigorous bridging program to be eligible to challenge, challenge the CSMLS uh, certification exam. Uh, this typically does pose a very big challenge, and a lot of them end up in different career paths as circumstances might not enable them to take on the Canadian certification journey. I mean, it's a very big time uh, and money commitment uh, for several months or even a couple of years at least. Uh, language and Canadian work culture norms can also pose a challenge for IE MLTs integrating to the workplace. I would say the recruitment problem in rural communities is very complex and it really will require the collaboration of multiple stakeholders. It's not a simple task to take on. So we're going to need to get hiring organizations, educational institutes, certification regulatory bodies, and provincial government uh, to sit down and talk about the best uh, path forward to tackle this issue. The biggest challenge I see in the rural and remote communities is the communities themselves hmm. and not the workplace or profession. Uh, I mean, Canadians are naturally culturally diverse, I would say, with different backgrounds, ethnicities, and religions. Rural communities do not offer the same kind of amenities 
that you would find in large urban centers. That's why the competition, it's a lot harder for to attract IE MLTs into rural communities than it is for larger cities. They tend to stick uh, in bigger cities than they do up north or in uh, rural and remote sites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just for community, as you were saying, community and grocery stores and places of worship and all of those things that are in, involved in that. I hate just to uh, paint it as far as the challenges part, but I truly believe the long-term solution will have to be, we will have to consider a grassroots approach for those communities to grow their own candidates. I mean, I mm-hmm. mentioned multiple stakeholders in there because of the size of the issue. We want them to grow their own candidates through recruitment, uh, maybe for the MLC programs at career fairs and local high schools and subsidizing enrollment through bursaries with a return for service agreements. Uh, there is no better long-term solution than to grow our own candidates in local and remote communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, another innovative approach that the MLPAO has been working on as well and evaluating is maybe considering the Alberta and Saskatchewan model of training and hiring uh, CLXTs, combined lab and x-ray technologists in rural hospitals, who can cover uh, the core lab MLP scope in chemistry, hematology, and limited transfusion medicine, plus x-ray tech duties as well. Mm-hmm. Like covering both of those bases. Absolutely. It works yeah. very well in Alberta. Mm-hmm. Greg, are you comfortable weighing in a little bit on this idea of what possible solutions might be? Yeah, I mean, I defer to Anas on his experience with IE MLTs, but I think ultimately, you know, as it relates to bringing individuals into the workforce, we do need to create broader awareness about the opportunities in lab medicine. And and just tell you an anecdote, just recently Mm -hmm. I attended a, I guess we'll call it a job fair, but it was more of a a conference for high school students looking for career opportunities. And I was connected to this mostly because of a connection I have personally and attended with pride wanting to talk about lab medicine, coming to realize that actually the individual that even invited me thought I was going to talk more broadly about hospitals. They had Mm -hmm. no idea that labs are a separate employer with separate individuals. And you talk to people about hospitals and healthcare, the first thing they talk about is nurses and doctors. And I, you know, I think we're we're still struggling with really creating an understanding of the value of lab medicine, but more importantly, the opportunities that a career in lab medicine can provide. And, you know, I think we are very fortunate to have the kinds of opportunities that exist in Canada for trained MLTs and, and uh, technicians across the country. And uh, really, it's, a, it's too bad we're not doing a better job of, of creating an awareness, you know, as these kids are starting to align themselves from a career preparation perspective. So many of the people who arrive in our organization as new grads tell me the same story. You know, I, I went off to become a insert career here and determined after X, Y, Z that it wasn't for me. And all of a sudden, I ran into this person who told me about lab medicine and the rest is history. And I think, you know, if we could just cut that short circuit that conversation and be able to have a conversation with them about lab medicine when they're actually making that first decision how much better would we be you know i think we could exacerbate an existing problem as we become more successful and i know we are being generally successful right now at selling our classes i don't think that that's necessarily the issue 
So before I advocate for increasing class sizes, I mean, I think the other piece we need to talk about is, is our placement process. I think, you know, how we work together to improve the number of placements uh, is a big challenge for us. And we're still, you know, here we are in 2019 and we're working in a placement model that I'd argue is decades old. We haven't yet really embraced how we can leverage technology to help us accelerate and improve placement numbers. But what is happening is that lab medicine is changing in terms of how we deliver it. I'll give you two examples that we're living with right now. One of the core placements for an MLT requiring training is in microbiology, yet the trend nationally, I'd argue internationally, is to consolidate microbiology laboratories to make better use of high-end automation and other technologies that are evolving. As that happens, the number of placement sites reduces, and therefore you start to be constrained in terms of how many students you can actually cycle through an organization. At Erlo, when I started here in the organization, we had six laboratories that performed varying degrees of microbiology. Today we have one. And mm. so as we look at how we move students through the placement process, it's about figuring out how do we bring more students to the lab you know, in a restricted geography? And how do we leverage technology to uh, accelerate the placement process without undermining the competency building, but by enriching the experience through simulation, through advanced teaching methods, so that we can really and truly create a broader uh, placement opportunity and increase those placement numbers. That is the, the rate limiter, I would argue, right now to getting more students into practice. And I think until we figure that out, we're going to be challenged uh, in terms of how we can develop our own and, and recruit from within. Right, like until that placement process is updated. I think it is right now the choke point in our pipeline. And mm -hmm. we can do a lot of talking at the front end, and I think we have to. Don't get me wrong. I think there's a lot of advocacy that has to happen at multiple levels of government about not only awareness of the profession and the value it brings to patient care, but also the support for developing proper academic programs that can develop the, the workforce that we need for the future. Uh, but until we understand how to manage the placement process, I think we, that may be our Achilles heel. Mm -hmm. I do fully agree. It is the biggest bottleneck that we're having right now is just figuring out a place for students to do their clinical placements. And with the whole regional, national, and international model of consolidating lab services, I think we're going to need to get a little bit of an extra support from the government, uh, from uh, the hiring uh, organizations and educational institutes to work together through bursary programs, uh, reimbursement programs, just to help those students out uh, find a proper place for them to get their uh, clinical placement done. I mean, not all the students are capable to afford going to a larger city with a big lab to go ahead and get their clinical placements. And, the way I look at this issue is just a purely supply and demand. The demand keeps increasing at a rapid pace. Canadian population is uh, aging. Uh, Canadian MLT population is aging as well. More than 40% are eligible for retirement within six to eight years is a very scary statistic. Mm -hmm. And the supply is just not able to catch up. And the biggest bottleneck uh, that I see is definitely the clinical placements. That's why we need to get the support from different stakeholders yeah. in tackling this issue. Mm -hmm. One last point on clinical placements, and it kind of goes full circle to what we were talking about earlier about core labs. Unfortunately, most of the core labs, well, I can speak to Erla and 
from my knowledge of the of Ontario, I mean, as we start to see consolidation, some of these uh, disciplines such as micro or even pathology, a lot of the core labs out there are left without the ability to do a placement in their site. And the reason for that is because they have to be placed at multiple sites in order to get proper exposure to each of those disciplines. So here we are talking about core labs being a very exciting place to be to, to have a career and a complex one that requires a very specific skill set. And we're struggling to give our students exposure to those environments. So off, more often than not, they gravitate towards those large centers, not necessarily because they want to, it might be because it's the only thing they've ever known. Mm -hmm. And well, Earl is so well positioned to be able to provide great placement opportunities in both large core lab community lab facilities, but also very small rural core lab facilities and to do it in a seamless manner because we're one organization. Our challenge is really because of those bottlenecks in, in those specific areas. So, I mean, that th those are the challenges that I think many of us feel not only here in Ontario, but in Canada. And I think we have to really think through uh, how we're going to manage that going forward. If we just peek through the curtain a little bit into the future, what are some possible concerns if the situation isn't righted? I mean, we're already feeling the impact of the shortage, and sadly, this is the new norm. Uh, I don't want to be pessimistic, but we're, we're having vacant positions that were months and even years to fill, depending on which lab I've worked. But the impact is dire. Uh, it's causing a lot of stress on the existing staff. Uh, staff are having to work a tremendous amount of overtime just to go ahead and keep our uh, doors open, pretty much. I really must say that what's really keeping us going, and we are very fortunate with the integrity and pride that lab professionals take in their work and the understanding that our work is a crucial component of patient care. This gives the initiative for our staff to work extra hard and go the extra mile and make sure that our services are fully covered. I have personally seen staff make personal sacrifices and put in the work just to come to work and cover uh, gaps in our schedule. Yeah. You know, I can't emphasize that enough. Our lab professionals are passionate about what they do and they're passionate about the patients they care for. And I'm always amazed at what they will do uh, to make sure the patients come first. I'm quite proud to see what they do every day. I think, you know, let's not mince words. I mean, I think the, this, the challenges we're seeing from a recruitment standpoint and the growing challenges that are ahead are going to lead to issues in delivering quality patient care. And I think ultimately our lab staff are holding it together the best they can. But as the problem begins to exacerbate itself, we will start to see more and more erosion in quality. You know, there's no better lab service than those provided by lab professionals in a lab. And I think the easy way out in some cases is, is looking at other strategies that can uh, provide some lab diagnostics without the same level of rigor and interpretation. This is not me being critical of point of care, but point of care is a good example of where point of care has been used as a surrogate or even replacement for uh, labs. As lab personnel reduce, uh, point of care becomes a more attractive option for hospitals that are struggling re with recruitment. There are real trade-offs when you migrate from lab-based testing to point of care. And I think, you know, hospitals need to recognize that, but so does our healthcare system. The end game is that patients are still getting lab diagnostics, but they're getting it in another, another manner. And I think that can uh, lead to a different standard of, of care. So I think ultimately, 
we need to be careful about how we move forward. And this is why I'm so passionate about making sure that we do everything we can to continue to accelerate our efforts to increase recruitment, increase uh, placement sizes, make sure that we're bringing competent professionals into Canada who can help us fill this knowledge gap because we are going to see uh, a continuing demand for these services. And I think, you know, from my vantage point, we want to make sure that lab services are provided in the right way by the right people at the right time. That when point of care is appropriate, that's done. That when in lab is necessary, that that's done and that we're not making sacrifices solely based on the availability of a workforce. Amazing. Thank you both so much for your time. I really, really appreciate you speaking with me. Thanks very much. It's our pleasure. Thank you for this opportunity, Danica. We really appreciate the voice. And I just want to say it is a great time to be an MLT. Excellent job opportunities and evaluate where you get here. You've been listening to The Dish, the MLPAO's monthly podcast series discussing key issues within the medical laboratory profession in Ontario. This episode was produced and recorded in our office overlooking Hamilton on the Niagara Escarpment and in the Hamilton Public Library makerspace. It was edited by Lauren Hicks. The next episode of The Dish will be out next month. The Dish is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.